Good morning, everybody. My name is Brian Watkins, and welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. Mother's Day 2018, I walked into an intervention at my parents' house. It was rough. Uh, I mean, the letters from my parents were one thing, but it was really my aunt and my brother, their letters really shook me. They had been the ones who were really answering phone calls and they had been trying to get me into rehab and like, it was bad. I mean, the four of them did not expect me to, to be alive. Welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. My name is Michael Lynn from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm Lee McGinnis from Leesburg, Virginia. As members of the recovery community, we created this podcast as a way to provide experience, strength, and hope through the lens of the Daily Reflection book. Each day, we interview members of the recovery community in the hope that their experience may provide inspiration. We value inclusion and diversity, and we really want to provide a platform for all the voices of recovery. We aren't affiliated with any 12-step or recovery program, but you may hear these mentioned throughout the course of an interview. Hey, before we get to the show, I'd like to ask a favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it'd be great if you could leave us a comment or a rating. This is going to do a couple of things. It's going to help us expand our reach and improve the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, everybody. Today is October 29th. And as usual, we have a guest in the studio, Brian Watkins. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Mike. We get started in the same way every show. We ask the guest to read the Daily Reflection for the day. Brian, would you get us started? Sure will. October 29th, our survival. Since recovery from alcoholism is life itself to us, it is imperative that we preserve in full strength our means of survival taken from the 12 and 12, page 177. The honesty expressed by the members of AA in meetings has the power to open my mind. Nothing can block the flow of energy that honesty carries with it. The only obstacle to this flow of energy is inebriation. But even then, no one will find a closed door if he or she has left and chooses to return. Once he or she has received the gift of sobriety, Each AA member is challenged on a daily basis to accept a program of honesty. My higher power created me for a purpose in life. I ask him to accept my honest efforts to continue on my journey in the spiritual way of life. I call on him for strength to know and seek his will. Thanks for reading that, Brian. Before we begin, would you share your uh, date of sobriety? Yeah, my sobriety date is January 12th, 2019. Thanks for that. Well, as you were reading this, uh, what, what jumped out for you? What, what were you thinking about? Really? I mean, the first word R uh, kind of stood out to me, like, uh, uh, you know, in recovery, in my sobriety, I, a lot of times I focus on me and mine and like, I, I want to live, but it's really about R uh, and about like, you know, I need my higher power and I need other people to help me. I, I, I couldn't do this alone. I tried on my own to get sober and it, and I failed on a daily basis. So I need to remember on a daily basis that I need to rely on other people in my higher power. You know, the thing that jumped out at me was, you know, survival is a pretty strong word. It's like life and death, survival. And then the other thing is it links it to honesty. What are your thoughts about honesty in the program? I mean, honesty is uh, the most crucial thing. That also stood out to me too, but uh, in the reading... Honesty was, uh, I, I lived, a, my life was a lie for a long, long time. And, uh, and, and that was before I even picked up alcohol or drugs and it just got worse. And like the greatest lies I, I ever told myself were, were not even other people. They were to myself that like what I was doing by putting myself in a bubble 
and it was me versus the world and even my own family. It, it, it just was really destructive and darkness. And, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't until I actually got honest with uh, myself that I really truly needed help and that I had no clue whatsoever how to become sober and stay sober that, uh, you know, the, I wouldn't say the light switch went off, but uh, like things changed for me. And I share from the heart, I think, as you know, mm -hmm. and then other people in meetings. And like, I, I just speak what my truth is and mm -hmm. that changes on a daily basis and, and it has evolved. And mm -hmm. one day, and like, I try to be positive, but sometimes I'm not feeling so good. So I got to be honest about that. You know, there's the good, bad and ugly in life. And as long as I'm honest about it, I can work through it and, and, and have others help me. Yeah. So what brought you to the program of recovery? You know, what was going on in your life prior to 2019? Oh, man, it, my life, uh, it, it was really bad. Uh, I mean, I picked up like a lot of us as a teenager, but uh, I mean, I was a blackout drinker from the get go. And my 20s and 30s, I basically threw away with uh, my drinking and drugging and like, well, I'm not going to say it was all bad. There were good times, but this darkness inside me, it just grew and grew. And I, I kept losing things, you know, jobs, friends, pushed my family away. And like, it was really, really bad. Uh, 2017, like towards the end of it, when I went to my uh, first meeting, I, I was dating someone for four years and, and, and the relationship was really bad. You know, we, I, we were both, uh, well, you know, I was an alcoholic and used other things. And with her, you know, I picked up some harder stuff and it just got really, really bad. And that relationship ended in the courtroom with the last words I ever heard her speak were, yes, your honor. And after that, it was just a real tumble down. I was unemployable. I was paranoid. I couldn't leave the house. And really what brought me in was uh, Mother's Day 2018. I walked into an intervention at my parents' house and uh, I went off to uh, rehab. Wow. What, what was that like, uh, you know, walking into an intervention? It was, uh, well, I remember getting there and uh, I saw my, my aunt's car and my brother's car in the driveway. So I'm expecting to walk in and see my two little nieces. And I go in the house and it's quiet. And there was a guy standing there in a suit. And he said, hi, Brian, do you know who I am? And I'm just where I was at. I was like, are you a detective? And he kind of <laughs> chuckled and he was like, no, but your family would like to speak to you in the other room. And I walked in and it was my mom, dad, my aunt and my younger brother. And, uh, the guy turned out to be an interventionist and I, I don't know. I sat down and they read their, uh, their letters to me and, uh, it was rough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the letters from my parents were one thing, but it was really my aunt and my brother, their letters really, uh, really shook me mm. because they had been the ones who were really from that breakup at the, in the fall of 2017 until that intervention. I was like losing my mind and they kept coming. My aunt and brother kept coming, answering phone calls and they had been trying to get me into rehab and like, it was bad. I mean, 
my family before them did not expect me to be, to be alive. Like mm. that's the reality. That's why the intervention was staged. It was, I was at a point of life or death. Well, what a blessing to have people in your life that, um, that care so much that, that they, they plan to, to intervene, you know, in your destructive path. So what happened after the intervention is that, did you, did you go away? Yeah. I mean, basically they let me think about it, but like, I mean, my back was at the wall. There was nothing going on good. And the guy, I went out back in, in the backyard and then the interventionist came and talked to me and, uh, he did what he was supposed to do. He uh, got me to get in his car and they drove me up to Karen. And like I said, it was mother's day. So it was a Sunday. And I still remember it. it we got in the car and it was like a cloudy day and I knew it was going to rain, but on the drive up to uh, Karen, it was pouring rain the whole time. And I just sat there. He tried talking to me, but I literally just was staring out the window as this rain, like was just pouring down. And I just was like, I didn't even know what to think. I mean, I was at a total loss. Like mm. I knew I had to go to rehab. I didn't want to go to rehab. Like basically my family during the intervention told me like, you know, uh, if, if this doesn't stop and you don't go away, like you're out, like you're out of our lives. And like, like I said, when my brother read his letter and like my eldest niece basically called me a monster as she had asked my brother, why does uncle Brian become a monster? Like that's where I like broke down during the intervention because mm. like I speak about that during meetings about the monster and that's the reality. I become a monster when I'm drinking and drugging. What's happened to that monster? He's still there lurking. That's the reality. And uh, fortunately by not drinking, like, you know, in daily reflection, it talked about, you know, I have to, have, you know, I, I, I can't put any substance in me. It talks about inebriation, but for me, as soon as I put a substance in me that it's like a genie in the bottle, but it's worse. It's the monster in the cage. It comes out and there is no stopping. Uh, like, I don't know. I mean, when I, when I would start, I'd always get to a point. And for me, like that, I would not call it the happy place, but that really good elation place for me when I was doing my thing was like a pint of straight vodka and like a bowl or a joint. And then I would be like, okay, I could feel that lift off. And then, but it just kept going. And then eventually, mm -hmm. you know, after four or five pint glasses and like, you know, a couple more bowls, it was just blackout and just, I don't know. I just became insane, violent and just like nuts. I was just pure evil. So why is it that you think you couldn't just stop when you hit that perfect spot? I mean, I, I believe now that it's because I am an alcoholic and, and it's a genetic thing that once it's in me. I talked about that light switch kind of before, but like for me, I describe it as once that light switch is turned on, there is no turning it off unless I, uh, unless the stuff runs out, I pass out or I'm arrested. I mean, I have to physically be removed from it. And if I'm on my own and the conscious and stuff runs out, I'm going to get more. Mm. But unfortunately at the end, like dealers wouldn't want to interact with me. I'd go into like bars and like liquor stores and they wouldn't serve me. I mean, like, that's how bad it was, you know? And uh, I don't know. I guess I was chasing something and I don't know what I was chasing because it was just, well, I guess I do know what I was chasing. Annihilation. It really was annihilation I, and it wasn't really my goal, but it always happened. I can relate to that, you know, searching for that, trying to recreate that complete shutoff. You go away. You come out, 
you start going to meetings? I mean, what, what happened? I mean, then? my parents, I still remember it was June 10th of 2018. My parents dropped me off around noon. I went to a, a meeting at two o'clock up here in North Philly. And the problem is this, when I was in rehab, they had like family visitation. And my mom was like, I searched your house and there's no alcohol in it. And I'm like, yeah, no, there's no alcohol. Right. But she didn't find the jar that had the ganja in it that I picked up two days before I went in. So after she told me that, and it was probably like three weeks into rehab, I started thinking and like obsessing about that jar, knowing it was there. And when I got out, even though I went to that meeting, I came home around three that day and I had a decision to make then. And it was, do I throw this stuff out or do I crack it open? And because I paid for it, you know, just get high. And that's what I did for the first five days. And I started going to meetings every day, but, uh, for five days, I got high every day, but it was just like it had been before. It wasn't just like hit, have a bowl and then like, that's it. It was like, have a bowl, have another, have another, have it, you know? And it just, by that next Friday night, I went to the liquor store and I picked back up alcohol and it was, it was game on again. Unfortunately, mm. it was just going to be for that night. And that like active relapse lasted like, you know, six and a half months. And I was going to AA meetings every day, but I was going to one a day and I was, I was not honest. I was lying not only to my, to everyone around me, but to myself thinking, Oh, I, I it's always going to, it was always tomorrow. Oh, it'll be okay tomorrow. I'll just do it today. And the reality is, is it just kept going until the, until the breaking point. The pain associated with being separated from drinking and drugging is pretty intense. I mean, especially when it's through the lens of an intervention. But in my opinion, what you experienced after that was likely even more painful. Okay. You know, having the knowledge, knowing that you've got this thing, hearing stories from people about how they've wrestled with the same thing and, and ended up in the same place, and then making that decision to, to try it again. What was that like? After not getting high for 28 days, that first bowl was spectacular. I mean, that's the reality. It was like total elation. And, and the crazy thing is, is like, I still remember it. And at that time, the liquor stores on Sundays closed at seven, right? And they weren't selling stuff at the Acme nearby and all that. And uh, I had been gone. I, I have a garden in my backyard and my mom had bought me all these plants. So I got high, put on music and was like gardening. And I was watching the clock to click down till seven. And I basically patted myself on the back when seven hit and I didn't go get alcohol. I thought, oh, okay, this is cool. I can just do the, you know, the marijuana maintenance thing. And the reality is that like, like the monster had awoken and it just didn't come out in full, full form. That, that mm -hmm. takes, that's what happened. The monster's full when the alcohol's in me. Yeah. Because it, like, that's where like the, the evil and the, and the pain and the anger and rage, and it, it just comes out then. Uh, your sobriety date is in 2019. So can I assume that you continued to drink and drug until that sobriety date or did you have more attempts? No, I mean, out of rehab, I mean, like I said, in 2017, I went to a couple meetings at the prompting of my girlfriend at the time. And uh, that was ridiculous because that just didn't work. You know, I came home and like, then we were off doing what we did then together. No, like I said, like that, like six month period. I was going to meetings, but like, then there was the breaking point, but I, I, I haven't picked up since January 12th, 2019. And, uh, it's just, not, it hasn't been an option. And, uh, I, and by the grace of God, I haven't picked up. Tell me about what your program is like today. I'd say, uh, my program is a lot different than in, in the beginning. 
in the beginning, I was just holding on and I couldn't be alone. But like today, I, I really think that uh, I've gotten to a place of like calmness. And I, uh, I mean, I wake up in the morning and I wake up rather early. Some Sometimes like this morning was like 4 a.m. Usually it's around a little before 5 a.m. And as soon as I wake up, I hit my knees and pray. And then I, re- I actually read the daily reflection for the day to myself. And then usually, uh, you know, I start, I start some water and I get some coffee and then like I, I work remotely and I work and uh, I do Zoom meetings throughout the day. And, you know, at the end of the night, I hit my knees and I pray and I get into bed and, you know, I sleep. And like, you know, my program, like I talk to other alcoholics, you know, I have sponsored men in the past and I do service work. And all I know is today I have relationships with people. My family's back and 99.9% of the time I'm in a good place, just in the moment and nothing's bothering me which was not how it was when I was out there. And it definitely was not how it was when I first came in and was going through the steps for the first time with my sponsor. Things were rough doing those inventories and going through the process. Are you drink proof? No, I am definitely not drink proof. And I'm certainly not, uh, you know, you know, picking up some weed. I mean, it's all over. I smell it. And, uh, you know, now that it's for me, I have like, I don't dwell on it anymore, but I used to think like, okay, I'm sober now and the uh, pocket's legal. And I'm like, you know, but that's just the way it is. And that's okay. Um, no, I mean, not everything's peaches and cream. Like I'm dealing with stuff like, you know, my dad was diagnosed with cancer about two months ago mm. and about two, two and a half weeks ago, he had his one kidney removed. Then, uh, you know, I guess it was like, couple days after that he had to go back in for emergency surgery for like a hernia and all this stuff but almost died and then uh we just found out this past tuesday that you know when they when they went in they didn't find anything but uh and they did all these you know the cat scans and mris and stuff but like they they see that there's like you know the cancer metastasizing was in the renal vein and artery so it, it spread and they don't necessarily know where but my dad's been having lung issues for years and his health's declining. And, uh, when I first found out, I cried and I haven't cried since, but I continue to pray. And I will say this yesterday, I did cry after coming home from my home group. I walked in and my uh, girlfriend was on her zoom meeting and she was sharing at the time. And she spoke about it, about, you know, my boyfriend's dad's really sick. And like, just hearing the words come out of someone else's mouth, I, I teared up and started crying. It just is what it is, you know? I mean, it's made me definitely face things, you know, about what's important in life. And I continue to keep sobriety important, but it's also that have me thinking about life and death and all that, you know? Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear hear about your father. I'll definitely say a prayer for him. When we face these things, great challenges like this, the program teaches me that a drink's not going to help anything and how grateful I am because I can be there and be a support system. So it's amazing that you can you can tell a story about these tr- horrible tragic places you've been and then talk about how, you know, you're there for your father. So that's a that's a beautiful thing. So what advice would you have for somebody that's maybe struggling with 
feeling the same thing you felt before you decided to change your life? I'm going to say what someone told me up at Karen. And uh, he said to me, give it a year. What do you have to lose? You know, your way hasn't been working. And, and I couldn't even take that advice. And this is a guy who was back in the day, like I heard his story when he shared in the auditorium and he was just like me real hard. And I mean, he was a deadhead and traveled with the Grateful Dead back in the, you know, late sixties, early seventies. And like, did the, like he was into things that I was into and it's the look in the eyes. You can tell when someone really is living sober and not just like under, not under the influence, but like emotionally sober. Like they just have that look of like, there's a joy hidden in there somewhere. Even, even in the pain, even when they're going through pain, you can still see in their eyes that they have that feeling like it's going to be okay as long as I don't drink or drug. That's a great perspective. Everything's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a great discussion, Brian. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap? I'll just say this. Uh, it's a miracle that I'm sober today and I haven't done it on my own. I, I definitely needed to find a higher power, but it was important for me to go through um, the 12 steps with my sponsor because I was able to clear up the nonsense that was in my head and all the darkness I was carrying in my heart and soul. And like going through the steps helped that prayer is important to me, but I, it's one of those things that when I, I don't have all the answers and the further I go along in sobriety and in life, the less I need to, like, I don't even have to know. I just do. It's about action. That's really what it's about. Acceptance and action. And I, and asking for help. And, and like, I don't have those fears anymore. I could, I always thought I knew the answer. I didn't need help and no one knew a better way. And, and the reality is, is like, it's gone a complete 180. I was totally wrong about everything. Like you're, no matter how bad things are going, I know it'll only get worse. Like you had said before, it'll, it'll just make it worse. I, I do not ever want to be in the darkness and be that monster again. There's two guarantees. I'll either end up in jail or dead. That's a fact. Well, Brian, thanks so much for spending some time with me and sharing your experience, strength, and hope. I truly appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a good day. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find us online, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Daily Reflection Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Reflector. You can read stories of recovery from our community at blog.dailyreflectionpodcast.com. Please don't forget to give us a rating on your podcast app. We greatly appreciate it. Have a great day.